take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to continue our series of sermons about vintage Jesus or what we should know about Jesus from the Scriptures, what the real life of Jesus was about, what He was like. And over the last few weeks we've begun this series, we've talked about His divinity and we've talked about last week His humanity and we talked about the ultimate question in life of who do you believe Jesus to be or who do you say that He is. But today we're going to focus at the center of the story of Jesus, the reason for which He came, and in the midst of it, ask the question, what did He accomplish in His death? A couple of weeks ago I mentioned uh, the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I mentioned the scene where Aslan, the great lion who represents Christ in that movie, comes to the place where he is going to give his life for a human that has sinned. And I was, I was re-watching that scene earlier this week. I, I noticed something that I, I did not remember from the scene previously, something that was important that kind of stuck out to me. And in that scene, we have Aslan who is taken before this horde of demons and evil ones. And, and the, the evil witch is at the front and she is going to perform the sacrifice. And as Aslan walks down the middle of this, this gauntlet of evil, the first thing that happens is she says, bind him. And then they shave him to humiliate him. And then she says, bring him to me. And it's an interesting picture of this great, powerful lion, shaven and bound. And as they lay him up on the stone table, the witch bows down into his ear. In a conversation just between her and this great champion lion. And in the midst of that conversation, the whisper, although fictional and although based in a land called Narnia, you can imagine Satan, as Jesus was on the cross, almost whispering something similar to him. And the witch just says to him, You've disappointed me, Aslan. Do you really think that dying for this human is going to accomplish anything? Because when you are gone... It will mean nothing. So much for love. And in that moment, what she is questioning in that fictional account is the very thing that the world might question about Jesus Christ. What does it matter that He died? Now I want to let you know that I am a compassionate man. And this is how I know I'm compassionate. Because I found a resource this week that I thought that would make a great sermon, a great outline for a sermon. I could use that, and it only had 50 points. That's 50. That's a five and a zero. And the name of it is a book by a guy named John Piper, and it's 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. And as you walk out today on the table, some of you may have seen it out there already. I just I listed those for you. You can get the book if you want more information. It's not very big, um, which is kind of crazy with 50 chapters. But I decided instead of 50, we would do two. And all of God's people said, Amen. That's right. We're going to do two. So there's my compassion on you today. But out of Romans chapter 8, we're going to answer the question, what does it matter that he died? We're going to answer the question whether it was 
useless as the witch would accuse Aslan of. Romans chapter 8. Just a little note from Martin Luther King Jr. that I thought was interesting. It says the dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, it's on your handout. Three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. Today, we're going to ask two questions or find out two reasons that Jesus' death is important to us. The first thing that I want you to understand before we even dive in to Romans chapter 8 is that Jesus died for us. Why did He have to die? The simple answer, the two-letter answer is us. Listen to just some verses from Scripture. You don't have to write these down, but... You can if you want. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And by His stripes, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 12, He poured out His soul to death that was numbered with the transgressors, yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for us. Romans 4, 25, He was delivered up for our trespasses. Romans 5.8, but God showed His love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins for the, the righteous, for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. 1 John 2.2, a verse we'll talk about a little bit later. He is the propitiation for our sins. And then Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. If you want to know the basic answer of why Christ died, the basic answer is He died for us. And Romans 8 tells us why that is. Verse 1. Just the first four verses this morning. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful men in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. This morning out of that passage, there are two reasons that I want us to see that Jesus had to die and that His death mattered. And the first is, is because when we trust in Him, Christ's death liberates us from condemnation. Christ's death liberates us from condemnation. This week I read the story of a young German in 1943, a guy named Jörg Gertner. Jorg was part of a, uh, a the, was around during World War II and got caught in North Africa in 1943. He was part of Rommel's great wave of infantry that swept across the Middle East and Africa. If you know your history, there was a British field general named Bernard, Frederick Bernard Law Montgomery. And he defeated Rommel in Northern Africa and Part of what they did is they gathered up all these Germans and they shipped them to other places, prisoners of war. 
The British handed these prisoners over to the Americans and the Americans brought them to the United States. Now, Yorg was a young man who was in Fort Denny, a prison camp in New Mexico, and remembers one day being in camp, realizing he was a prisoner of war, realizing that he was a part of the Nazi war machine, realizing that he was going to live his life, the rest of his life, as a condemned man. And one day in 1945, Yorg got a plan, and he decided he didn't want to live that way anymore in that prison camp, and so he found a way out of the camp, and he escaped. He went and found jobs here and there. He became a sharecropper for a little while. And he kept moving from place to place because he was always worried his, his employers were going to find out who he was. And as a result of finding out who he was, that they were going to turn him back in and he was going to be shipped back to the prison camp. So he, he moved all the time. At one time he thought he might try his hand as a tennis instructor because he'd been really good at tennis for a while. But before long he left because he was afraid the authorities would get him. He became a ski instructor in the Rocky Mountains. In 1952, he was part of a team that went down into the Donner Pass. and A train had wrecked there. And as there were a number of skiers that were there helping out, Jorg was one of the ones that helped rescue 200 people from the train wreck. But he got worried. He said the reality is he, they would know who he was, and so he began to move again. And he went back to his home and he said to his wife, it's time for us to leave. For 20 years he'd been running and it was time for him to leave. And he sat down with his wife and he said, we've got to go again. And she says, why do we have to move again? He had never told her the full story. So he sat down and he told her. His wife looked him in the eyes and said, after 20 years it's time to go to the Office of Immigration and Naturalization. The war is over. Sixty-four years old. Jorg went to the Office of Immigration and Naturalization. He told him his story. He told him about Donner Pass. And when he got through, they said, You are released. You are pardoned. You are a citizen. You can now go back into society. Now here's the deal. Jorg, we don't know when, but at some point in Jorg's journey, he became a free man, and yet he lived constantly like he was condemned. And there are many Christians that, just like Jorg, find out that they have been set free by Christ, but they live constantly like they've been condemned. In Romans 8, 1, the first thing it tells us is that when we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. None. The first word of that verse of Scripture is an important word. It is the word, therefore. Now, I was taught when I was in college and seminary that whenever there was a therefore, you always found out what it was there for. And if you look through the first seven chapters of the book of Romans, it is all about condemnation. Romans 1 talks about the sin of man and what has happened to man and that we're coming under the wrath of God. It tells us in 121 that even though they knew God, they didn't honor Him, they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. In chapter 2, you find more. Chapter 2, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Throughout the book of Romans, it's over and over again. You get to Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, Just as one man's sin entered the world, death through sin, so death spread to all, because all have sinned. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. And Romans 7.24, O wretched man am I, 
Who will set me free from this body of death? Romans 1 through 7 is all about condemnation, death, that you and I, because of our rebellion against God, are standing under judgment and wrath of Him. Romans 1 through 7 is not a hopeful chapter. They're not hopeful chapters in Scripture. Time after time after time again, it says you are all sinners. Now I know in our touchy-feely, everybody's okay kind of generation, those are not words people like to hear. We live in a world that tries to build self-esteem all the time, right? I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. But the truth is, Scripture doesn't use that message, and what it says is, we're not okay. And then Romans 8, 1 comes along and says, therefore, or but, or in spite of that, or here's the good news after the bad, there is now no. In the, in the original language, the emphasis there is on the word no. There is absolutely, without a doubt, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now here's the thing. If you live your life trying to make sure that you do enough good to outweigh your bad, you're under condemnation. If you live your life trying to find your fulfillment in other people on this earth, you are under condemnation. If you live your life trying any other way other than the person who died and rose again for your sins, Jesus Christ, to find redemption from this condemnation, you are under condemnation. But when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is absolutely no condemnation in your life. Ever. And that's what it tells us there in verse 1. In fact, what we need to understand from this passage of Scripture is that what we had in Christ was a completeness, a fullness, that He he made sure the wrath of God was not spread to us, that He allows us to live in Him. If you look at the story of if you look at the story of Noah in the book of the Bible of, of Genesis. In, the, in that book, Genesis 6.14, God tells Noah to make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, I don't know what gopher wood is. All I've ever known about gopher wood is sometimes people tell me to go for wood. And you make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, this is the interesting thing. The word pitch in there to, to cover the inside and the outside of the boat is the word that we use today for atonement or is used in the Bible for atonement. And the idea was that Noah was told by his family that they were to go go get in the boat. And when they got in the boat, that they were to make sure it is sealed inside and outside so that when the floods came, they would be secure. That God's wrath would not fall on them. In the New Testament, there's a word that is used for that. And it tells us that Christ's death was for us a propitiation. All right? I want you to say that word with me. Propitiation. Say that. Propitiation. That is a deep theological word. Okay? When you go out of here today, over lunch, I want you to talk about propitiation. At work tomorrow, I want you to ask your, your co-workers, have you ever heard of propitiation? You can just use that word. Here's what it means. It just means that Christ incurred the wrath of God on our behalf. Here's the truth. God hates sin. 
God hates sin. It is completely different than what He is. And what we have in Scripture is this idea that when you and I sin, God cannot look upon us, and in fact, His wrath was going to fall upon us. But Christ, our great substitute, stood in our place and He took His punishment on our behalf. I tried to think if there was a way that I could communicate this idea of taking the wrath, but every example I came up with was an example that just didn't seem to work. I tried to think when I was growing up with my brother and I, if my brother got in trouble and was about to get licks. My dad had that number one paddle that he used to use, red with electric tape on it that was light. And my brother was guilty as charged, as my brother was always guilty as charged. I, on the other hand, was never guilty as charged. But if my brother was guilty as charged, it was time for his punishment. Could I imagine myself stepping up to my father and saying, Dad, I realize that Brian has done something terribly wrong here, but I want to take the licks. And as I thought about that, I thought there's absolutely no way that would ever happen. I thought about my two boys, Eli and Luke, and they're just now growing, but I could not imagine Eli saying that he would take Luke's punishment. Or Luke, even as he grows up, saying he would take Eli's punishment. Because that concept is just completely foreign to our minds. Our goal is to avoid punishment. Amen? That's what we try to do. And yet Christ here, it tells us, became the punishment for us. A completely sinless man stood in our place. He became the punishment for us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that in Christ there are two things. First of all, it means that in Christ we are declared righteous. We are declared righteous. All that means is that Christ has looked upon us and He sees us and we are justified. The easiest way that I can use that, that, that theological term to explain is justified. That it, when Christ looks at us through His blood as we have sinned and yet He has paid the penalty for us, when He looks at us, it is just as if I had never sinned. We are justified. I heard the story of a British businessman who was coming to America for six months and he owned a Rolls Royce back in London. And he decided he wanted his Rolls Royce to be used here in America, and so he shipped the Rolls Royce to America. Now, I do not know how much that cost, but most of the time he owns a Rolls Royce, it doesn't really matter what the costs are. And so he comes over to America, and while he's in America, the Rolls Royce breaks down. And so he calls the factory, he calls the people, and they say, listen, we'll put somebody on a plane tomorrow. They'll be there tomorrow. They'll fix your Rolls Royce for you. So they come to America. They fix the Rolls Royce. Everything works out fine. He's fine here for the six months. When he gets ready, he ships it back. About a year later, he realized he never got a bill from Rolls Royce. And so he calls up Rolls Royce and he says, listen, about a year ago on this time frame, I was in America and my car broke down. You sent a guy over. If you flew him over the next day, his name was this. And what I need to know is how much do I need to pay for that? And the person on the other line thought for a minute, looked through some things and came back on the phone and said, sir, this office shows absolutely no record of anything like that ever happening. This is what I imagine when we get to heaven. It tells us in Scripture that Satan is still the accuser of the brethren, that he still accuses us on a daily basis. 
But when we get to heaven, Satan is going to start bringing up all the stuff we've done in our lives. I don't know about you, but that's going to be a long list for me if he starts. And in the midst of that conversation, they're going to say to us, stop. Because in heaven, we have no record that anything like that ever happened. It's gone. We are declared righteous. And here's the other part of it. Not only are we declared righteous, but if we live in Christ, we also have a desire to be righteous. We desire righteousness. It tells us that we try to live according to the Spirit. We, we don't live according to the sinful nature in verse 4. And the idea there is when we accept what Christ has done, we are so thankful that we don't want anything else but to live for Him. We see in this passage of Scripture that when Christ comes, the first thing that we understand is that Christ came and that He, He in His death, liberated us from condemnation. Here's the second thing. Not only to liberate us from condemnation, but the second thing is He frees us from sin. Now this is much more than just the stain that sin had put on our lives. This is He frees us from sin completely. Look what it says in verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. It goes on to say that what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending His Son in order that we might be able to live according to the Spirit. Here's the thing. Romans 8.2 tells us that the law of the Spirit, that Christ in His death has set us free from sin. That means two things. First of all, it means that we are not constrained by sin any longer. It means that we are no longer bound by sin. It means that we are no longer subject to sin. There's this real uh, sense that when we are not followers of Jesus Christ, that we are bound, that we are held, that we are tied down by sin. That we can't move, we can't have being, we can't truly live. It's this, this picture of a man in a straitjacket. Now, they wouldn't have had that in biblical times, but they would have been very familiar with men who were captured and bound and wrapped so that they could not move. And the picture there is that when we are not in Christ, we are constrained by sin. And the beautiful picture that Scripture gives us here is almost as if someone is come and as we are constrained by that sin... It has bursted open and set us free. Now what that means is, not only are we not constrained by sin, it means we're not controlled by sin. What it means there is that, that, that as Christ has, has set us free through His death, what has also happened is that He has come along and given us the ability to be controlled by Him, not by our flesh and sin. Verse 4 says that we live according to the sin, not according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And so what we have in Jesus' death is that when He died for us, He set us free from all that sin had done in our lives. Now here's the wonderful truth of Romans chapter 8. The wonderful truth of Romans chapter 8 is that what it tells us happens here in that Christ has, has justified us Christ has, has taken that condemnation off. What it tells us there at the beginning is that, that Christ has given us a, a freedom that comes from not being held down by sin anymore. 
is at the end of this chapter, it tells us that what Christ has done is an eternal thing. An eternal thing. You see, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, tells us one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture of what Christ has done, that there is no condemnation. And the end of Romans chapter 8 is another beautiful picture, one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture, that once Christ has saved us, once we have given our lives to Him, that we can be sure that we will never be separated. On your handout, and it won't be on the screen, there's a feeling that says, Romans 8 starts with the declaration of no condemnation. Here's the glorious thing. It ends with a declaration of no separation. You see, the truth is what Christ was trying to show us is that He loved us so much that He gave His life. He died for our sins, but He did that that He might purchase us for all eternity. I love the end of that chapter. It basically says in verse 35, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it's almost as if Paul tried to think of everything possible that could separate us. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. No. He says, for thy sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered sheep as slaughter. But in all these things we are more than conquerors. For I am convinced That when we have Christ, that because of His death, because of the resurrection that followed, neither death nor life, angels or principalities, things present or things to come, any powers, height, depth, other created things should be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. So you ask, what does His death do for us? It cleans us up and it makes us free and it does it for all eternity. I heard uh, the story also this week of Queen Victoria of England back in 1878. Her third child was a, a girl, Princess Alice. And Princess Alice had married a king who was one of the kings of a small German state. They had a number of children, but it was during a time of some disease and several of them contracted what was called black diphtheria. And after one of the little girls died, they were horrified when their youngest child, a little boy, was diagnosed with the same illness. The doctors told Alice, you cannot be around this child. We've put a nurse and a nanny in the room with him. You and the king are to stay away from him. This is highly contagious, so don't go around. Princess Alice was standing at her son's bedroom door one day when she heard the little boy ask the nanny, why doesn't mommy want to come in and play with me? anymore. Alice stood outside that door for a minute, began to weep at the thought of her son, thinking that she didn't care, threw open the door, ran into the room, grabbed the little boy, and smothered him with kisses. The end of that story is that Alice contracted that disease, and within a week, she was dead. I wonder if we were to ask Alice this day, if it was worth it, what she did, I can tell you as a parent, the answer to that question would be absolutely it was worth it. And what we have to understand is that you and I had a contagious, fatal disease. 
And what Jesus Christ did on the cross is that He loved us so much that He threw open the door, He ran into the room, He picked us up and told us that He loved us so that we would never doubt it again. In the fictional story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the queen and all of her evil gang go off to make war against the humans and the good guys of Narnia. Two, two uh, girls are left to take care of Aslan, and they go and they sleep there on the night, and as they're walking away the next morning, suddenly the stone table cracks, and they look over into the horizon, and coming up behind it is Aslan, resurrected and glorious. And as they go to take on the armies that have gathered of evil, you suddenly realize that when the queen bent over and said to Aslan, your death will mean nothing, she couldn't have been farther from the truth. And the truth is, when it comes to the death of Christ, there are a lot of things in this world that don't matter. But the most important day in history when it comes to our sin, is the day that Jesus Christ died for our sins.